0: I think this is a small group,
1: and okay. can you hear me now? So let me get through well, this. And... Have this somehow. <laughs> we have to make this very formal and official. Um, thanks, everybody, for coming. I'm Deb Hastings. I'm the Director of Continuing Nursing Education here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and we're happy to welcome you all to this sort of new series that we're, we're trying to devote um, our conversation to global health, particularly global health regarding um, nursing opportunities in various uh, uh, spots around the world and today as you know our focus is nursing in Nepal. So the purpose of of this presentation is to review factors in Nepal that impact the decision to volunteer in a global health nursing role. And at the end of this presentation we hope you'll be able to examine aspects of personal (laughs) readiness to volunteer in a low-income country. We hope you'll be able to identify culture shock and re-entry shock, identify common myths about global health nursing, and create a personal plan to prepare for your future role as a globally aware nurse. Before we begin, those of you who attend our Nursing Grand Rounds know I have all this accreditation information to share with you. After this program, uh, actually on Monday, you will receive an email from from our department, the Center for Learning and Professional Development, and there will be a link to the online evaluation. So we would really appreciate it if you would share um, your input by uh, completing that evaluation with us. Um, Once we get that, we'll upload your credit to your online transcript. Um, If you're here, we hope that you have signed in so that you can... um, earn your CE credit and you must attend eighty percent of this program in order to receive credit and for folks who are viewing online if you have questions during this presentation you can email them directly to Jessica Sullivan and that's Jessica.l as in Lee dot Sullivan at Hitchcock dot org and she will share your questions with our speaker also for folks online please email Jessica within an hour of the completion of this presentation, she'll need your uh, name, degree, and zip code, and then we'll get your um, information uploaded to your transcript as well. Um, if you need instructions on how to access your transcript, you can t- contact Jess directly. And this information out here by the sign-in sheet for those of you who are here. We want you to know that neither our speaker nor anyone on the planning committee has identified a financial interest or relationship with any commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. So, at this time, I am really happy to introduce our speaker, Joe Nimzora. How'd I do with that so far? Sounds great. Okay. Everyone calls me Joe. He actually did it, he wrote it out phonetically for me, so I wouldn't uh, screw up his name. I'm happy to know that I achieved that. So, Joe uh, today, as you know, is going to be giving us an update on his project in Nepal. And for those of you who don't know, Nepal is the Himalayan country best known as the home of Mount Everest. Joe is a native New Englander, actually. He holds his BS in nursing from UMass and an MS in nursing from University of California at San Francisco. Is that, oh, is that what that is? Yes. Okay, um, cool. I'll go next, uh, yeah. All right. Uh, he's a former ACLS instructor and has served as an ACLS regional faculty for the American Heart Association. Wow. His career has been split between teaching and clinical practice in critical care, and he's also one of the few Americans to hold an RN license in Nepal. I thought that was very cool. Yeah, way. I knew no. it was at time. Uh, yeah. Uh, so Joe's been with us before, and he has allowed me to share this. He gave a talk here in the summer of 2010 about his work in Nepal, and at that time, he came to us, he he took out uh, time out from his hike on the Appalachian Trail. And I don't know if time was of the essence, but he walked here from Bennington and gave the talk in his hiking boots. No exaggeration, right? Um, that night, he left here and slept at the Velvet Rock Shelter. Anybody know? I mean, I haven't been there. You know. Okay.
0: It's only about a mile from Hanover. It's beautiful. So, yeah, you know, I think it's very cool. There's bats.
1: Um, and the next day, he then went on for another 200 miles. But I, I, when he wrote this, I actually remembered that. Yeah, yeah okay. He's, yeah, he's been
0: hiking. Yeah, am you on the trail, you know there's what they call the hiker smell. And, uh,
1: he doesn't have, I have it today. I've showered today yeah. and I'm ready to
0: go.
1: So he's here today. He, he actually, what I can say is he's a little more civilized today. He's here for the Nepal Earthquake Summit that's being held at the Dickey Center over at Dartmouth College. Going on for the next two two days and after that he's leaving here and going to Bar Harbor, where he's living for the winter. That's pretty nice. Um, so let's welcome him here today.
0: Great, thank you. Okay. I'm happy to be back. And what happens is I have uh this cover one of my books, but then I I think there's a sort of an evolution that takes place when, depending on how much local nursing you've done, and when you first do it, it's like, oh my god, this is amazing, it's just incredibly good, and all that, depending on how you go there or what you do. I'm a lot older than I was uh, when I was here before, and I don't have as much uh, pearls about it, but part of it's trying to get everyone's reaction about what they think. So what I have is a slideshow. And can I interrupt you for one this. second? Uh, can I interrupt you for one second? Is there a chance you could wear the lavalier microphone? We're not hearing you oh, as well yeah, here. Actually, you? are actually There oh, reverse persons. Is this, this one is on? That's, I'll right. talk on this one. I'm very sorry. I didn't realize. I'll, I'll stick by here. Okay. That's this. Oh, my God. How's this? Can you hear me now? Perfect. Like you're standing right next to me. All time. right. I'll, I'll try to do better. The glory that was Paris... All right, so anyway, uh, I had written one book which was about my first summer there. And and the idea was um, it was actually nonfiction. I spent a lot of time doing pediatrics, so that one person who does pediatrics in the audience talked about my time doing pediatric burn care, which was not exactly the happy moment of trying to do international travel. And then since then, I wrote another book but I, starting in 2011, which was after I had been here the first time, I changed what I was doing. The first three summers I taught at a school of nursing in rural Nepal, Tansen, Nepal, run by uh, Christian missionaries and work with the missionaries. But since 2011 when I go there, I've specifically focused on teaching critical care skills to nurses and doctors. Uh, partly because in the time I had done clinical practice there I was doing bedside work every day getting up, getting report with people, seeing all the patients, seeing what was happening to them and really identified uh, problems they were having with what we know as failure to rescue or excess mortality after and having unexpected events take place. So if you actually go there uh to one of my web pages or something you'll be able to see this now. You can find me on Twitter, but what I want everyone to do right now is get out their cell phone. Get out your cell phone? You don't have them? Okay, well um I was gonna say and it's a small audience, uh the purpose of this was to say uh if you get out your cell phone and then you text me, you can send me a question completely anonymously while we're there. But I think you guys have that covered with the person in the back, so we can do that, or else what we'll do is everyone get out a small piece of paper like get out like I see you have notes here. no one's moving uh just get out a small piece of paper if you want to ask a question, you can do that and uh, like pass it forward, and I won't know who asked the question uh to just give you an idea here, this is a map of South Asia, and the old maps are better. Nepal is up here. The Himalaya actually goes from uh, all the way through Nepal up to Kashmir. And it's the northern border of Nepal, it's the Himalaya with Everest. Um, and over at the Dickey Center, where they're doing the Nepal presentation, they have all these people that have like, specialized in the ethnography of the tribes in the Himalaya. Well, there's 30 million people in the country, 99% of them do not live in the Everest Valley. And actually, what I do is I'm, the last year that I was there, I mainly uh, worked with like medical schools that had teaching hospitals in big cities. So I could go to like the touristy areas of Nepal and I have seen Mount Everest out of the plane window, but uh, I mainly was in urban South Asia as part of what I was doing. Here's a better picture of the country. Kathmandu is the capital, and then we have the Himalaya on the northern border. But then this part down here, the southern border, is called the Terai, and that's where about half the people live, and it's flat, and it's 104 degrees in the summer during the daytime. Uh, uh, people know it, and New Hampshire and Vermont are full of people that love to do hiking, and the legendary stuff is either the Annapurna trick, which is considered like the best hike in the world, takes 30 days, or else most of all the stereotype is Mount Everest, and there was a movie of Mount Everest, which was really about western rock jocks, and the Sherpas were kind of like a minor character in it. but. As we said before, I'm actually, that's kind of, that's all the introduction I'll give you in terms of where it is, so it can mentally fly there. But the idea here is to talk about whether you want to go to a low-income country. To talk about culture shock and especially re-entry shock is critically important because when I had done this series of talks before, one of the places I went to was Bay State Medical Center, and there was an emergency room nurse there. Who told me that she had been, like, pulled out of the emergency room to go to Haiti, right at the earthquake. 100,000 people. I see people raising their heads. Has anyone? Did anyone go to the Haiti earthquake response? Tell me what you did.
2: Um, or
0: tell us who you are. Let's go around here. I'm going to pull the Phil Donahue thing.
2: My name's Debbie Fabry. I'm the nurse manager in the pain clinic. Uh, um, I was working in Boston at the time, and I went with... 10 um, new grads from northeastern university nursing oh, school they hadn't passed the boards yet so they needed a nurse to go with them so i went with them and we were in milo which is in the northern part of the oh. island the uh, hospital soccer corps. Yeah. and um, they worked pacu they worked the ed they worked med surge they worked in the or um Uh, We had cheat sheets. I I tried to use a little bit of my high school French. They understood French um, mostly. But um, we had a translator that traveled around with us. We also did a lot of vaccinations. We went up into the mountains and did some.
0: How soon after the earthquake was that? About nine months after. Okay, so that wasn't during the acute part, but still, that was pretty amazing that you had the courage to take a whole bunch of them with you. Uh, was the 90 bed hospital but yep. um, from the day after the earthquake hit
2: their census was about 300 so a lot yep. of the care was provided in our tents out in the yard and they had one tent that was the uh, cholera tent and one tent oh, that my. was just overflow from their emergency. I told
0: you topical disease is easy headache, cough, diarrhea, or rash we
2: were shooing chickens
0: off the Oh, all right. Well, she, all right. For those persons, she was there saying she worked partly, they had a call or a bed in this thing, and they were shooing chickens off the bed. Oh, my. Well, so that was a uh, sort of a tangent. But the point was uh, this person that I met from Bay State Medical Center, you know, I was riding on helicopters. I was there three days after the earthquake. We saw incredible things. I know that I saved lives. Why is it that I feel bad and I'm depressed? And I said, well, it's because you, have you ever heard the word re-entry shock? Do you know what re-entry shock is? And I think that that's very important to be thinking about in terms of what you do. And actually, if you learn the principles of re-entry shock, it helps you if you have a bad day, even when you're right here and you never left home. And that's part of uh, developing maturity and growing as a nurse, but anyway. Um, Florence Nightingale was actually the original global health nurse because she went to Turkey um, during the Crim- uh, Crimean War. She actually never made it to the Crimea, I don't think, and did all her stuff in the sub-part uh, of Istanbul. Um, Nepal got famous or got kind of moved to the front line because of the earthquakes that they had. I was actually there during both earthquakes, but I was in the flat part, the flat hot part, hundreds of miles away, so we, ra- we rocked and we rolled, but nobody was hurt and nothing was even cracked where I was. Uh, you saw images like this. This is actually a beautiful small town in Nepal, Tabsanku, um, and you had all this dev- devastation and a couple hundred people died in this little town, but actually vast the vast majority of places in Nepal were strangely unaffected. And what happened was, at the time of the earthquake, all these international rescue teams descended on Kathmandu, expecting that it was going to be similar to the Haiti earthquake, where 100,000 people died in the first five minutes, and then realizing that uh, the hospitals there had actually been the beneficiaries of a multi-year strengthening program, partly funded by United States International Agency for Development. Um, And uh, the hospitals were mostly intact, and that only about 3,000 people had died in the city of about 3 million people, but the vast majority of casualties were in isolated villages in the mountains. So one of the things is not every humongous international humanitarian uh, disaster is the same as any other, and actually part of it was that the dysfunction of the Nepali government made it um, made it worse than it could have been they didn 't really mobilize their own people that well before the uh, international people descended uh, for me i got when I was there i had within twenty four hours I had two invitations to join. Nepali medicals, docs and nurses to go to the earthquake zone. But as much as I've done Appalachian Trail hiking, I've, my knee was bothering me. And I realize I'm sort of getting too old and too fat to be going uh, backpacking at 8,000 feet elevation with medical supplies. <laughs> so there is something to be said for leaving it to the youth of today. Um, Nepal's both a Hindu and Buddhist country and that has a lot to do with their attitude about natural disasters. They, they seem to have one natural disaster after another. I put this in because it's a beautiful picture and it shows the death of Buddha. And uh, the attitude about how, what happens when you're sick or when you die in the, culturally in that country is one that uh, causes you to think a lot. Uh, they... Uh, they're much more demonstrative about, uh, about having a funeral, for example. And I think I might have something from here right now, especially for my PICU person and then also for my other person. And before everyone arrived, went through this and I was saying, oh, where have you been? What have you done? What did you do? Um, and this will be on the lecture here. S- it's critically important if you're going to do global nursing to think about culture shock and reentry shock. And this is the best single web resource on how to deal with having been in an alternate culture and then returning that there is. And culture shock is when you go there and you say, oh my God, this is completely amazing. It's like in a movie. I'm in a movie now. And it's just astounding and all that stuff. Reentry shock is when you come back and you say, oh, my God, no one here understands what I just did. Uh, there is uh, everything. I, I now see that American culture is not what I thought it was. And now that my eyes have been opened, I will never be the same. Um, and that, that that sounds depressing, doesn't it? Uh, But you have to be prepared if you're going to, especially if you're going to do a foreign medical thing, you have to, uh, you come face to face with what is the standard of care there, what is the equipment they have, what is their attitude about illness and disease and all that kind of stuff. I see my, my, now you went to, you said you went to Haiti, right? I see you raising, nodding your head. So I'm going to put you back on the spot. You don't have to reintroduce yourself to everybody this time. Why did you nod your head? <clears throat>
2: um, going with um, soon-to-be registered nurses that were really starry-eyed and um, going to go and um, save lives, they, they had a really difficult time uh, witnessing for the first time what was really rationing of health care choosing who gets what um, based on what was available. For example, um, in the nursery, in the NICU, they had a baby who um, was was dying, and the nurses withheld care, uh, food, um, formula. The mother was dead. And um, then they had another baby whose mother was alive. The baby was healthy, but the mother was gone. I don't know where the mother was. They also withheld formula from that baby too because they said she has a mother but the mother wasn't there but they said but she has a mother because there was a third baby that was healthy didn't have a mother so that baby got the formula and these nurses had a very really hard time with that as well as seeing adults um, being um, not getting the best what we would consider the best care because she's going to die anyway they were giving sort of doing their best to give comfort measures, but not really pay attention to wound care, because there were other patients that needed it more. Wow. Um, I mean, we saw, we saw things that we wouldn't see here, like a machete wound, because, you know, they, they use machetes to clear sugar cane and...
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, that was very eloquent uh, and short retelling. I want to thank you for sharing that. I think that's the, that is part of what happens when you go there, and then when, when you come back, especially for like medical care reasons, then you redefine, or like, uh, I swore that I would never complain about the equipment in an American hospital again, ever as long as I live. And I happen to have broken that oath, but still. Uh, that's part of what you end up dealing with, and we'll get back to that. Culture shock also extends to such things as the fact that the plumbing might not be the same. And if you don't know how to use this kind of toilet, but you're thinking you're going to go to Asia, you might practice. There's actually videos on, the, on YouTube that go all the ins and outs of how to effectively defecate for your personal defecation. Uh, and if you give a patient a bedpan in Nepal, they will, sit, they will squat in the bed and use the bedpan squatting uh, instead of laying down like an American would, which is like, well, that's interesting. Uh, notice there's no toilet paper. Never, you never touch anyone with your left hand in Nepal.
2: Um,
0: back to this, this is my photo, and this is one of the temple sites that got kind of leveled. Most of this inside part here uh, fell down during the earthquake. It's about a mile from where I live when I'm in Kathmandu. Uh, What is this now? Uh, The hospital where I was teaching when I first went to Nepal, in order to get from there to any other place in the world, you have to pass this road. And um, I was looking for, this is not my photo, I was looking for this photo for years. Just in, and I've actually been on it when we got the car washed a few times um, because of that. So there's other aspects of how it's developed or not. Um, They had a they had a political problem with a petrol shortage, and they were prior to the petrol shortage they were trying to make it illegal to do this, but um, one of the other things typical was that. This is the Hannaford Shopping Center in Bar Harbor, Maine, and that's how you get your vegetables. And basically, oh, I thought I had another vegetable thing here. Uh, What they don't have in Kathmandu is, 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 is extensive refrigeration. You buy your vegetables once a day by the day, and you eat them after you buy them. So you buy them usually on the street from someone sitting on the sidewalk. So there's all that. Um, Recently the problem we had was that they start with poverty. They started with problems like, for example, 40% of children are malnourished there, highest rate in Asia. Uh, Then they had an 11-year civil war, then they had the earthquake, and then they had the petrol blockade and all that. And then When we're talking about culture shock, we also have to talk about medical culture shock, which is exactly what I think my friend here from Haiti can relate to. This was recently put out by, I think, the World Health Organization. And, no, I want to say it was the Clinton Global Initiative, one of the main NGOs. They were saying how much progress Nepal had made in maternal child health because in 1990, it was 901 uh, per 100,000 live births, which is an astounding number. And they got it all the way down to 258. And they were saying, wow, what dramatic progress, which is true, it is dramatic progress. Uh, But then by, and the change in family size according to the development curve It's actually only within the last probably 10 years or so that contraception has been widely available in Nepal. So, for how many people here do women sell? Like maternity, OBGYN, who works in labor and delivery here, or anything like that? Uh, The comparable rate in USA in 1990 was 12. And uh, in 2013, it's 20, but that's partly because they changed how they count it. So if I go back, the difference is they have about 258 maternal deaths per uh, 100,000 live births. The USA has 20. That's like 10 times. So that is a big problem there. That's a key. If you do global health nursing, it says that is like the key indicator of health of a given population. Um, this, is, this is the toothbrush rack of a friend of mine. And they all laugh when I, I was at the family's house. And they all laughed when I took this photo. One of the interesting things there is they have what's called collectivist culture, uh, meaning that everybody, you might have four generations living under the same roof. And if they have a distant relative who's the cousin of an uncle of a brother-in-law, they're sort of also in the family too. And so they have what we would call collectivist culture, and they also have communal family living style. So like one of the things there is, in USA, if you do a family assessment, if if you're teaching, if you're in pediatric, you really do family assessments no matter how old the person is, really, if you think about it. If uh, you do family assessment, you say, okay, nuclear family, blended family, stepmother, that kind of thing, divorced. Uh, I had a Nepali friend here in USA said, I'm reading up, I have to take this course on the family assessment. And they don't have anything that, re- that resembles what my family is like. The answer is, I think there's like 12, you count them and tell me, but it's like in this one house, there was like 14 people living together, and I had to have them tell me. Like, who, how is that person related to you? And uh, so that has a lot to do with, like, the decision-making of the people when a family member gets sick or not. Um, There was an American Christian missionary who came to Nepal. And she was someone who worked in um, hospice. She said, I've come here to teach them hospice. And I said, "Oh well, that's fascinating. You're going to try to translate an American hospice course into South Asian cultural practice. What do you what do you plan to talk to them about cremation?" And she said to me, "Oh, do they cremate people here?" And uh, she had a, that was a little problem because she didn't actually know that generally a Hindu or and or Buddhist person gets cremated in Nepal, and their ashes are swept into the river as part of the tributary of the Ganges. Naturally, one of the interesting things about any illness episode, even, even, even when the person survives, is that it's a public event. The family will attend. The family will all be there during the time the individual is sick. So sometimes you get a person comes sick, a mob descends. Uh... But then when they die, they're publicly cremated and you can go, one of the big popular touristy things to do in Kathmandu is to actually go to the temple of Pashupatinath, which is where they do this. And and this particular temple, you can see foreign tourists with these huge camera lenses, um, you know, taking photos of human cremations while you have weeping relatives all around most events, because of the cultural practice of communal family development and the idea that, the, that you are part of the family and you don't live by yourself, part of the whole thing is that they're all there for you. When two people get married there, it's arranged by the parents, and the two people don't get married. It's the two families that get married. Uh, one of the shocking things about uh, Nepal when you go there is the role of women and it's a very patriarchal society. Now, it's it's sort of paradoxical because it's a patriarchal society, and yet at the same time, because the gender role socialization of men and women is so different, there is a strength of women solidarity that, uh, for a woman, and my women friends who go tell me this, uh, for a woman it's very astounding and amazing and life-affirming in a way, that they have their sisters they can depend on. And we all have that. My wife who's from Boston area, like Boston Irish always has to go down to um, spend time with the plan inside one, Route 128 in order to feel renewed, and you <coughs> take that for granted, but then in, in, when you see groups of Nepali women doing kind of a similar phenomenon, then you say, aha, there is something to this. One of the things is women will do back-breaking labor because many times the men spend their time drinking tea and trying to do as little as possible, which I know is a slur upon the men of Nepal. But uh, these two are working as a, at a construction site. She's shoveling gravel into the basket, and this person is going to bring the gravel up a ladder onto the second or third floor of a building under construction. So many of the uneducated lower caste women, um, that's their job every day. They are, I once worked as a mason tender for a summer, and I am smart enough to know that if I tried this for five minutes, I would die. But that's part of the role of women as well, in terms of what their job is. And they're, and they're wearing beautiful bright clothes too, which is amazing. Um, one of the things that they've had, they had the Civil War, so for a while it's been popular to have protests, and what they do with protests there is they shut everything down and stop motorized traffic. And they're burning tires in this case, and tire, that's very noxious. And there was a point where they, all the possible protesters got together and signed a sort of an eco-agreement not to burn tires because it was bad for the air quality and people with asthma. Um, one of the specific things that I do there, probably the biggest thing that I'm famous for, I to think of myself as famous is, when a family member is sick and they go to the hospital, if the outcome is not good, uh, it's actually culturally widespread that they will be angry towards the hospital and the healthcare workers and attack the doctor. And um, this was a shock to me when I first learned about it and then have spent time working on it and talking with people about... um, I spend time teaching people how to do advanced cardiac life support, which is like resuscitation. They come in the ER, they look like they're dead, we start doing ACLS protocols like in USA. Uh, But when the family arrives, It's actually a big problem that they act out and have acting out behavior and there's been incidents where they fracture the person's skull or beat beat them or do all this kind of thing so when I'm working on trying to elevate standards of cardiac resuscitation there which is the ostensible name of what I do part of it is making sure that the people who learn this are able to address how to de- how to identify an escalating situation and de-escalate during the course of attempts to do cardiac resuscitation. And actually I'm hoping to get another grant to go back there and continue this because that's a big problem. Um, I have a few slides here basically with like clinical nursing pearls. Uh, and part of it is It's a low-income country, but that does not mean that they lack intelligence or that they are not motivated. Uh, The average motivation there to try to save the lives of the people with what they're doing is very high. And I often think that, gee, if if you had a Nepali person, they could come here and work, but most American nurses uh, would have difficulty going over there and working with what they don't have. And I do have some example. And, you know, they have committee meetings. I think the mark of civilized medical care is how many committee meetings you have. Um, Although this is, when I first went there and I taught at a nursing school, this was the students. You can start nursing school at the age of 16, do a three-year program. Uh, That was me with them. Oh, and I have my hat here somewhere. I didn't bring it. They're all required to wear uniforms. When I do this talk in front of nursing students, I say, oh gee, you know, if you were a nursing student, in Nepal, you would, you would go to class in this uniform and you were never seen, you're either in this uniform or in this uniform and that's it. And it's like, oh yeah, we should do that in USA, don't you think so? And they'd say, oh no. Um, I was, I'm was i really proud of this picture. Um, at one of the medical teaching hospitals, I was teaching medical students at this teaching hospital in a part of, uh, Near Paul outside, oh excuse me, outside of Kathmandu Valley, and <laughs> I was walking around and uh, came across the person who does this. What happens is, if you have a latex glove, you don't throw it away. You take the clean latex gloves or the sterile latex gloves out of one place, when you're done, they don't go in the waste basket, they go in a special basket so they can be recycled cleaned, dried, repowdered, and repackaged. And there's actually a person here, and that's what she's doing. She's hanging them all up to dry, and that's her job every day. So they have, in that respect, they don't waste latex in running a green hospital. Back to the diarrhea thing, and you said you worked on the cholera ward, and uh, cholera is about rehydration and kind of letting all the fluids get out there, but, As I said in the, for those of you who are in the remote spot, uh, I was teasing the group by saying one day we had 18 people there for rehydration after some kind of diarrhea after. not, I took this picture of that kid because mom was getting over a diarrhea episode and she had Jeevanjall and an IV. And I realized that if she had just flat out died over from her diarrhea at home, it's possible that kid would have just been hanging around her body in the same way. And so it was like, oh, God, you know, she's, her, if she had died from the diarrhea, we'd have an orphan, he'd die. Um, but anyway, part of this is everyone is learns how to make oral rehydration solution as part of nursing school, and that's the instructions from one of the homegrown nursing textbooks that they have. Um, all right, everyone tell me, what is the object in the one liter bottle on the left? Worms, worm. yes. It's not spaghetti. Which kind of worm is it? Oh, now you're in a remote location. The guys, how many remote locations are we running? As many as they're on the computers. Oh, God. I want someone from a remote location to type in what's their answer. There's four main kinds of worms. Which one is it? Turn to the person next to you. Make eye contact, discuss it. You can see this from here. And those of you in pediatrics, I'm sure you get stool for over and parasites all the time, but probably not positive. Hi. Someone here said pinworms. The answer is no, because they don't look like pins. Someone said tapeworms. No, because tapeworms are segmented. Uh, someone said roundworms. Yes, roundworms, because they don't have a hook. Um... So these are. This is roundworms, and I am told that these all came from one person, and it's part of the answer for child malnutrition in that country because uh, we we take the absence of worms in American water supply and every and food for granted. Uh, but if you have a person, this is a problem, which I said I wouldn't do. But if you have a person, a child who's malnourished you have to look up what worms are because they can eat half of what you put in your mouth. Uh, And the other thing is a bunch of stool specimens waiting to go. Sometimes I pass around one of the stool samples. Okay, um, TB was a big thing there. This lady, this is her x-ray up in the upper left-hand corner And I learned an interesting TB factoid that at the age of about 18 and 22, there's sort of a bump in TB mortality because you can develop obliteration of the lung rapidly enough to die of respiratory failure if you're in that age group. And this is hers, basically her whole right lung was gonzo. Uh, But the interesting thing was she wouldn't let them put in a chest tube, but she had tattoos. Uh, but she ended up having the chest tube and going home and being happy on TB therapy. Um, this is a chest tube. Now, most of you use, what is it, uh, plurivac? What's the other kind of chest tube thing I'm trying to remember? You know, when you get the chest tube kit and it's a three-chamber chest tube, which, which kind do you use here? Um,
2: atrium oasis.
0: Okay, that's what I was thinking. What else? Is that, is that the only one you use? Okay, well, basically, this is... Uh, in or- that's ex- The American chest tube is expensive. This is a one-bottle chest tube, and most of the time, this is the preferred chest tube that's used. And if they need three bottles, they actually get the three bottles. Now, I'm old, and I'm thinking Deborah Hastings. <laughs> this is- I'm going to put you on the spot. As a young nurse... And, and of course, you're only 29. Did you ever use the three bottles? Yeah, glass. I remember the glass Um, bottles. Yeah, and it was like I still saw glass bottles. Now, I'm so old, I remembered what to do with them. And, of course, with the handy-dandy diagram. Oh, the other thing was, so this is a patient, and he had uh, TB, and he kept uh, refilling up with the prolorefusion. The guy on the right is wearing his hat. And it's a topian. He would wear it at night with bed, which is kind of characteristic. This is one of the wards at one of the hospitals. This is they've they've had more modern ones, but this is what you get, which is kind of the old. There was I think eleven patients in this room and one bathroom. And this was what we called the Guinea Ward. And uh, this is also old, but this is typical. Now, who was the person who said, you had them out in tents, because it was a 90-bed hospital with 300? This slide is for you. When I first got there, there was numbers on the wall of the corridor, and I'm like, oh, God, what are those for? And the answer was, this was a 160-bed hospital that served 650,000 people. And, you know, one of the questions is, if you have a a 160-bed hospital that serves that many people, who is in the bed? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what do they do? And more than 160 show up, and that's what they do. So it took a lot of organization for them to do it. Uh, they had a the family-centered care on this thing is kind of a uh, joke, because one of the things is that the nurses there generally don't bathe the patients. The nurses there don't do incontinence care. The nurses don't feed the patients. Um, Well, if you're sick, you have a family member come in and at night they sleep under your bed, which that guy on the left is, that person on the left is doing. And if the patient is incontinent, the nurse kind of kicks them awake and says, get up and wash your loved one and all that. And then this person on the right is bringing food from a small restaurant prepared by a person of the same caste as the patient. And caste issues is a problem there, so. Um, we all know about nutrition and the typical, this is dalbat or this, actually no, this is just roti tea and corn soup. Typical nutritional intake of a person that 1,600 calories a day. They had had a famine in the western part of the country which was pretty much getting over. First summerite was there. But, uh, and then the dressing tray isn't the same as we would have here. They have a minimum of disposables. And if you're really old, you remember using the instruments to handle. uh, (laughs) Yeah, the tongs to handle stuff. And they, uh, for those of you who are young, this is how we used to do it. I actually have a video on the YouTube channel of that same kid doing this. And uh, a picture of a textbook from 1977, which was what they used as the reference for how to conduct the procedures using (laughs) sterile technique. Uh, um, And I'm getting closer to the end here, so I'm gonna make sure I get out on time here, but here's a woman who the child had an upper respiratory infection, but she's only about 22. Tell me what you notice about her hands. The mother. All right, no one wants to speak up. She had, all right, you said clubbing, thank you so much. She has fingernail clubbing. She, the rate of smoking is higher in Nepal, but uh, they haven't really invented the chimney. And to keep warm, they will have, the kitchen will be generally very smoky. So the kid got the upper respiratory infection because she was hanging around with mom in a smoky kitchen. Mom, who's only about 22, already has signs of COPD from chronic exposure to smoke for, from cooking fires. And actually in that country, one of the unusual things is women are more likely to have COPD than men because of this effect. And the smoking, the rate of smoking among men is like 70%, which is lower than, higher than the US has been since like the 1960s. And they know that they're perched on an epidemic of heart disease. And uh, all that. Um, and I'll briefly tell the story of this one. Uh, this child was 12 years old, and she was born with cerebral palsy. I was taking nice pictures of other moms and babies when I taught them. And this is oh wait, a minute, I'm going too far um, And the mom came to me and said, "Why aren't you taking my picture with my baby?" And the reason was because Gita weighed about 60 pounds, although she was 12, and she had bed sores and has obviously malnourished. Her head is shaved because she had head lice. And she was coming in to try to flap or fix the sacral ulcer that she had. Mom was doing the best she could. Now, this took time for and this gets back to what our person from eighty was doing. Originally, I was quite shocked. This would count as child abuse in the U.S.A. Because the kid was incontinent, she was being kept in a uh, shed attached to the house, laying on its thin piece of cloth over straw, which would absorb urine or whatever. And she was just really getting fed vegetarian stuff and being malnourished. So for me, originally, this person was somebody who made me very shocked in terms of what I consider to be a very poor treatment. Um, it took a long time, or took a while anyway, to kind of reconcile the idea that she was doing the best she could. She, she, had, she was trying as hard as she could, or didn't know any better, or had not had the benefit of nursing teaching. And Actually, when you do global health, there's kind of a movement to think about, what is it when we have a person who is uh, disabled in the village, or a person of a minority group within the culture uh, and who's sort of being hidden by the culture because they're not proud of that. I think one of the things that nurses need to do when they go to these places is to be thinking about, you know, what how does society treat the more vulnerable members who are not seen because they don't appear in public? Or they have to get to this point before they're there and uh, all that. Um, Just a picture of the traction. This is Gallo's traction, still in use there. Uh, When they have a mass casualty incident, like bus accidents, they break out the mass casualty stuff and that's just a picture of getting ready for a bus accident that had 15 people all arrive at once. I worked on the burn ward and a lot of my first book is about the shock of being on a burn ward uh, and dealing with what it was. I do not have graphic pictures of burned things because that's not what it's about. Um, and I don't want to remember them or inflict them on you, but under that set of hoops is a person with a 60% burn. And in Nepal, if you exceed 60%, you will not be treated. It's a, considered to be a misuse of resources because the mortality rate is too high. And uh, that person took the 11 days to die. Uh, and you talk about, oh gee, we're going to have reentry shock. This is more than just how well you did or didn't do with the toilet. You're coming up to grips with what the uh, health resources are in the country and all that. And I think that that's why being able to reframe it in terms of what is your personal attitude towards reentry shock is important. Uh, this was not my picture, but uh, this is a bride going to her wedding despite the earthquake. And uh, I thought that would be a good slide to kind of rinse the burn care slide out of your brain. Um, in Nepal, I'm friends. I play the trumpet. So uh, near my house, in, near the place I stay when I'm in Kathmandu, there was a brass band that did all these weddings. So I got to be friends with the guys, and I went to a bunch of weddings when I was there, which was cool. But imagine having a 12-piece brass band play as you proceed down the street. Um, there is a lot, of, a lot of things about the earthquake. Um, where the earthquake took place was in this area with the blue. And although uh, there was basically, in the first earthquake, there was 10,000 uh, fatalities First you can compare that with Haiti and Port-au-Prince had 100,000 so it was smaller than that but the thing was that um, in Kathmandu there was only 3,000 fatalities. Now of course it's hard to say only but um, the vast majority of them were in these isolated mountain villages which had difficulty of access. Um, What I do when I'm there is I because of issues about resuscitation and all that. I, My project is one where I work with medical schools and nursing schools to teach people to do ACLS, to teach people to be part of a team, all the stuff you use in ACLS. And um, this kind of shows you the distribution of where the medical colleges are. There's a bunch of them in Kathmandu, but a lot of them are in the flat part of the country. And I've been to about 11 of these. That tells you like what my area is. Um, this is a cartoon from a Nepali newspaper just saying um, it's harder to get things done because of the culture due to these things. Um, this was a very poignant picture because there are Hindus and Buddhists and I believe this is a Hindu shrine and uh, despite the devastation, they're still worshiping, still carrying out religious practice. All right, uh, I'm going to skip that here. Kathmandu itself, is the only way to get there is through this highway that ha- that goes like that for about 60 miles. Uh, they had some, when they had the petrol siege, they were having what they euphemistically referred to as communal violence, uh, which meant that <coughs> groups of people were rioting. I was not there for the rioting, but um, they got the... One of the interesting things was they were set up to do, like because of the communal aspects of the culture, they were set up to be able to take care of tear gas victims, and this is what they're, this is how they prepare with the tarps and everything. Um, and although you know, I want to, talk, I want to show all the good parts. And there's wonderful parts of the culture, and I want to do all that and talk about the challenges of just the infectious diseases or whatever but I think part of global nursing is knowing what the political situation happens to be. Uh, they had a period, they just got through a five, as if, they, if, as if the earthquake wasn't bad enough, they had a five-month period of uh, riots. And this is the guys, the guys sitting down in white were basically having a civil rights demonstration and the government was repressing them. They had videos of this, and they went to all of the, a lot of the videos were in cities where I recognized because I had been. I was like, oh my God. Um, come!" This tells me I'm coming close to the end. Uh, it is actually a very spiritual country, and although we think of the United States as being, you know, a Christian nation or something, uh, the amount of day-to-day manifestation of Devotion to spirituality far outweighs what you get in USA. USA. Um, just amazing stuff. And there are, and I'm trying to, I know I'm on the home stretch when I get this. This is back to the women solidarity issue. Uh, there's a lot of wonderful, beautiful things about this particular country and their culture. Uh, because they're worried about if they become a widow they have two ceremonies, one at the age of seven, and the another at the age of 12, in which they're symbolically married to a, a, a plant at the age of seven, and then the son at the age of 12. So that uh, if their earthly husband dies, they're still actually married to that same plant, and it prevents them from ever truly being a widow. And the set of rituals and ceremonies is very interesting. Um, I, this time, I did, I will, so I'm going to, now I signed the conflict of interest thing, but I will tell you, I have copies of my two books here. I will sell them to you cheap. Uh, But in the meantime, this is where you can find me or do stuff. I've written two books about Nepal, specifically about healthcare. I have a bunch of blogs, and these are all the addresses, and basically a YouTube channel, and I still blog. When I'm in Nepal, I blog on Nepal issues. And with a backlog, I have like 500,000 words in print. So at this time, I have five minutes left.
1: You had said you would address um, folks' interest in volunteering in, in low-income countries and preparation for
0: that. Um, oh, golly. Can you just touch on that? Would oh, yeah. Know? The question is, make sure I nail down the idea that meets the objective about if you're thinking of volunteering. Uh, The first thing is, on the web page, on one of these, I have a piece that says 12 tips about doing how to prepare before you do global nursing. I think one of the main messages is, uh, it's not a good idea, or it's not the best idea to just go, like pack as if you're going to the Caribbean. There's an advantage to learning the language, knowing the food, knowing some of the analogous cultural practices around death or illness uh, wherever you would go. Any of the, a lot of the time it, it uh, goes on what your, you know, if you're a person who likes to always eat the same food, maybe this, maybe you need to pick someplace like Ireland. Um, and you yeah, have potato soup, or to, uh, to get uh, used to the cultural aspects of those. In, in this case, uh, in the case of going to South Asia, you know you would have to learn about the c- communalism. You would have to be thinking about what, wh- what your attitude is if you see someone whose approach to health care of their loved one is different than what you have. I have a, a probably the single key piece that I've written is one that's like uh, 12 tips to prepare for global health nursing. And if you go to the website here, you'll find that one. How am I doing with that? I think one more thing. I have time to take questions. If you want to write down a question, or if someone wants to call in a question, then we'll go with that. What questions do you have? I pulled out a piece of paper. Write it down if you're too shy. something
2: I'll just share. I was in All right.
1: Haiti a little while ago. All right, here we go. And um, I just want to, in terms of being sort of open-minded when you go to a country, you know, we, we were teaching hand-washing, the importance of hand-washing. And what we, well, we did take into consideration, but what was shared by the nurses who were at this conference is that many places don't have water. So you really have to think outside of the box. I and mean, here we just don't have to think about the fact that there won't be water, but it's very common in Haiti. So again, going in without sort of already making a judgment and being open to what their personal situations are, I think is very important.
0: Uh, Specific to that thing, some societies are high-touch societies, others are low-touch. Nepal is one where you don't really hug the person. Uh, You would never be seen holding hands in public with a person of the opposite sex, even if you were married to them. and part of it is that uh, because the left hand is reserved for uh, use in the toilet, uh, you would never touch someone with a left hand. That is considered to be an incredible insult. Um, and part of that practice is because of that.
2: You had mentioned that it's a communal system. Uh, Is there tribalness at all, or is it just communal?
0: Um, That's an extremely interesting question, because, like, for example, and I can speak some Nepali, but my Nepali is terrible. When I first got there, um, I was very shy about speaking Nepali. Then I realized there are 102 languages in the country, Nepali is the national language so many people that I would be dealing with Nepali is their second or third language so their Nepali is not very good either even though they've never left Nepal uh, and so there there are very distinct ethnic groups uh, I'm at this the Dartmouth conference is wonderful but they're focusing on the Sherpas of the Himalaya which is about 2% of the population uh, it's there are definite tribal groups which is one of the fascinating things they don't call themselves tribes, but uh, there are very specific identities of person who is Magar, Gurung, Nirwar, um, Madashi, all that kind of thing, Limbu. Um, and yeah, those they have different practices or ideas about stuff. Um, okay, next. Uh-oh. incredible pause here. <laughs> okay.
2: Do the Hindu and Buddhist cultures get along?
0: Um, actually, they do. And one of the interesting things is that um, sometimes you can't tell the difference between a Hindu and Buddhist. They have a very syncretic religion there. They also have a Muslim po- population in the southern part of the country, and uh, there are areas where the women appear in those black burkas, even though it's 110 degrees in the shade. Uh, where the Muslims live, so it's very uh, religiously uh, me, <laughs> diverse. And yeah, they, they do get along. Um, there's inroads being made by Christians, uh, but they still actually are a very small percentage of the population, so. so I think we should close,
2: it's a little after
0: one. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for coming and sharing. Thank you so much, I'm happy to be here. Um, I'll stay around and answer questions if you need to do any of that stuff. I want to thank everyone for being here. Thank you so much.